shorter. Uh, today's reading is Matthew 3.13-4.11. through 4, 11. And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down before it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall now put the word of God to test. And again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Who do you think you are? Now, my daughter, Abigail, came to me before the service and she said, Dad, didn't you just preach a sermon titled, Who Do You Think You Are, about the genealogy just about four weeks ago? And I said, yeah, I guess I did. I said, but that was a question. This is an accusation. Who do you think you are? You've heard it as an accusation before, haven't you? You know, somebody tries to get away with something, or they ask for something, and you're like, who do you think you are? You know, because they're, they're, they're acting out of character for who they should be. You know, again, the, the old phrase, she has airs above her stations. You know, again, they're acting out of character. Who do you think you are to do that, to ask for that? And in the same way, we need to be reminded, friends, sometimes who we are so that we act in accordance. We need to be reminded who we are so we act accordingly. I mean, at some point in an, or another, you've probably heard a parent child or you've been the parent or the child on the receiving end saying, we don't act that way in our family. You know, remember who you are. We don't act that way. Who do you think you are? You know, sometimes it comes from others. You know, my daughter Hannah is the fourth one to go through the Camden Rockport school system. And so all the time she hears, oh, you're a Colstrom. I've had your brothers and your sister. And so there's a certain expectation on her about how she'll act or how she'll perform because she's part of our family. And in the same way, you know, it's great you saw up here singing. It's great to have Joshua home for part of spring break. And he probably doesn't even remember in the chaos of, 
of drop-off. And when I brought him to school back in August to drop him off for his first semester at Gordon College. But as I did, the thing that I remember saying to him at, uh, multiple times, and he may not remember it at all, is I kept saying, remember who you are. Remember who you are. The implication is remember who you are and act accordingly. Remember, you're my son. I'm proud of you. Remember, you're part of our family who's marked you. You're part of this church community who loves you. You have a God who's called you by name and who's given his only son to redeem you and make you his own. Remember who you are as you go off into this world, as you make decisions, as you journey into life. Remember who you are. Friends, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? It may be the most important question that you ever answer. Because if you don't know who you are, then you don't know how to act. You don't know what to do. You don't know how to live. Because our activity flows from our identity. Our activity flows from our identity. The kind of tree determines the type of fruit the tree bears. Your activity flows from your identity. So who do you think you are? Friends, at the very center of this section that Jeff just read for us is the question of identity. Jesus is beginning his ministry, and friends, Jesus' ministry is going to flow from his identity. Jesus' activity is going to flow from his identity. Who does he think he is? Now, the scene picks up from last week. We have John the Baptist. He's in the wilderness. He's calling people. He's preparing them for the coming of the king. He's calling them to repentance. He's saying, repent, turn, and be baptized for repentance. And what happens? Jesus comes to the river. And he comes to be baptized by John. And verse 14, John immediately objects and he says, who do you think you are? John recognizes Jesus' identity and he's confused by this request because this request is out of accord with who Jesus is. This request is utterly out of accord with Jesus' identity. John goes, I need to be baptized by you. Well, what do you mean coming to be baptized by me? Who do you think you are? His implication is Jesus, based on who you are, this is really below you. You don't have anything you need to repent of. Later on, the Apostle Peter will write about Jesus and he'll apply Isaiah 53 verse 9 to him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, Peter writes, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus committed no sin. And friends, repentance is to turn back to God. Jesus never turned from God. Jesus didn't have anything to repent of. So then why did Jesus come to be baptized that day by John? Friends, because Jesus was obedient to the Father. His response might be a little cryptic here in verse 15. Jesus says, Jesus answered John, but let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. So Jesus says, let it be so now. He seems to be saying, you're correct, John. You're right, this is below me. I have no need of repentance. However, now, in this instance, I come for baptism not because I need to repent. I come for baptism out of obedience to the Father's command that I come now, and so I fulfill all righteousness. 
I'm obedient to the Father. Jesus' action here is obedience to the Father. And friends, the Father uses it as a clear confirmation of His Son. The Father intends to use this to confirm who His Son is. And verses 16 and 17 are absolutely incredible. Verses 16 and 17, friends, are show and tell. In verses 16 and 17, the invisible all of a sudden becomes visible and the abstract becomes tangible for us. This morning we sang, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. And friends, some people think the concept of the Trinity is some abstract idea that a bunch of theologians mused on and came up with. But friends, here in verse 16 and 17, the Trinity is presented to us not as abstract theology, but as concrete, tangible reality. We witness all three members of the Trinity present at Jesus' baptism. The voice of God the Father is heard from heaven as the Son is baptized and God the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. Friends, this entire scene is an affirmation of Jesus' identity, of His identity as the Son. And as the Spirit descends, it affirms His identity. And as the Father declares a clear affirmation in verse 17, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Who do you think you are? Jesus is the beloved Son. With Him, the Father is well pleased. And friends, this statement is key. This statement is key because Jesus' activity, His ministry, is going to flow from His identity. The tree bears fruit according to its kind, and Jesus' ministry flows from His identity. And it's no surprise that immediately following the baptism, immediately following this amazing picture where Jesus' identity is declared and affirmed, immediately there's an attack on the identity of Jesus. Immediately, he is taken into the wilderness and he is tempted and he is tested and his identity as the Son of God is challenged by the devil or Satan, which means the accuser. The accuser brings him out into the, de- into the desert and the devil comes to tempt Jesus when he is weak. Friends, we know that humans can go for just little more than 40 days without food. So at this point, after 40 days of not eating, Jesus is weak. He's at the very extremes of human existence. And friends, isn't that always when temptation comes our way? You can ask my wife. I get hangry. When I am hungry, I get angry. Irrationally, unnecessarily irritated about dumb things. I'm not actually angry. I'm hangry. I need to eat something. Friends, we are more likely to give in to temptation when we're hungry or tired or stressed or scared or overwhelmed. The offer of an illicit escape comes and we are far more likely to take in up and to fall into that temptation. Friends, if you find yourself in that place, if you find yourself in that place, get off the X. Get off the X. This phrase, get off the X, is a phrase that I actually heard a couple weeks ago from former Force Recon Marine Chad Robichaud. 
Chad was giving a chapel talk at Liberty University, and Chad shared the account on one of his eight deployments in Afghanistan as part of a joint special operations command task force. He told the story how one of those deployments, he found himself on the X. In military training, it teaches you that if in, in an engagement, the X is the ambush site or the kill zone. And Chad found himself on one of his deployments sitting on the X of a Taliban ambush in Afghanistan. And he was moments away from being killed. And Chad said his Marine training taught him clearly, if you are in that situation, if you are stuck on the X, you do not prepare for battle. You do not fight it out. You have one job, and that's to get off the X. Get off the X. And hear me, church, there are too many today who are living on the X. There are too many of you, too many of us, who are living on the X. Oh, this is not really sin. Oh, that image, that video is not actually pornography. Oh, just one more drink, it won't really put me out of control. Oh, just a little flirting. That's, that's not being unfaithful. Well, she doesn't need to know where I am. He doesn't need to know who I've been talking to. Oh, it's really just a little bit of money here that we're talking about. Well, well they won't miss me if I, if I work late again. It's not really gossip. I mean, I'm just concerned. It's just a little white lie. Church, we're living on the X. Sure, the thing itself might not be sinful, but we're foolishly and unnecessarily living in the kill zone. And it will only take one hungry, tired, stressed, distracted, overwhelmed night, and that temptation will take you down and destroy you. Church, get off the X. Get off the X. Remember, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, lead me not into temptation. Friends, he didn't say, lead me not into evil. He said, lead me not to the place where I am even tempted to evil, where I'm vulnerable to evil. Lead me not into temptation. Get off the axe. Church, in this account, Jesus stands square on the axe only because it's the Lord's will for him at that time. And unless you have that clear a call, then get off the axe. So, led by the Spirit, Jesus stands vulnerable in the kill zone, on the X, and the accuser unleashes his attacks upon Jesus. And friends, it's a direct attack on Jesus' identity. Notice the first two temptations in verse 3 and in verse 6 begin with, If you are the Son of God. He's questioning. He's challenging Jesus' identity. Who do you think you really are? Oh, the Son of God. Oh, really? Really, if you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, friends, Satan's temptations always strike at the heart of identity. If you're the Son of God, then where's your Father? Why has God allowed you to be here? If God loves you and you're His son, you're His daughter, you're His child, why do you hunger? Why do you hurt? Why are you enduring this trial? Does he really love you? Does he really have your best in mind? Why has he not delivered you? Is he unable? Is he unwilling? If you really are a child of God? Satan always seeks to drive a wedge of doubt between father and son, father and daughter. 
if you're a child of God, then why are you still struggling anyway? I mean, don't you love God enough? Don't you have enough faith? How could God love somebody who's still struggling the way that you're struggling? Are you really, really his child? You see how Satan tempts us to doubt and to forsake our identity? Doubting and forsaking the Father and his provision for us? Who do you think you are? And so the devil challenges Jesus. If you're son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, friends, hunger is a legitimate human need. And it's made far more intense after fasting for 40 days. And notice that when Satan tempts here, friends, he doesn't always tempt us with wrong. Friends, Satan doesn't always tempt us with sin. Satan tempts us to achieve a legitimate end in an illegitimate way. Satan attempts us to achieve a legitimate end in an illegitimate way. Friends, sin is always a shortcut. Sin is always a shortcut. It tempts us with an impatient and illegitimate shortcut to what we think we need. Rather than waiting for the Father's provision, rather than patiently trusting in the Father's timing, Jesus, take matters into your own hands. You can't trust the Father's provision. Turn these stones into bread. I mean, friends, isn't that exactly what happened back in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve, you can't trust the Father's provision. Don't patiently wait for Him. Take the fruit into your own hands. Friends, sin is always an impatient shortcut. And you and I still today do the exact same thing. You know, we have legitimate human needs but we are, we are tempted to distrust our, distrust our Father's plan and His provision, and we impatiently and illegitimately try to fulfill those needs by our own hands. Friends, hunger. Hunger is a legitimate human need, but we don't trust God to provide our daily bread. So we take matters into our own hands. His provision might not be enough. Or is he, really, can I trust him to provide for me enough for tomorrow? So we try to turn stones into bread. We exploit, we steal, we overwork, we hoard. But we don't patiently trust him to give us this day our daily bread. We have a legitimate human need for intimacy. However, rather than trusting God's plan and design for human relationships, we take matters into our own hands and we're impatient. We seek intimacy in all kinds of illegitimate relational and sexual ways. We're impatient. We don't trust God's provision or His timing. We don't trust that He Himself can and will fulfill us. So we illicitly and impatiently try to turn stones into bread. We take matters into our own hands. We transgress God's lines and His design for intimacy. Pornography, fantasy, homosexual and heterosexual sin, emotional manipulation, extreme isolation. Friends, these are sins that are an impatient and illegitimate shortcut to trying to fulfill a legitimate need. It is to ultimately mistrust God's Word and his provision. And as such, in verse 4, Jesus answers the devil's temptation by quoting some true and trustworthy words back to him. Deuteronomy chapter three, 8, verse 3 is what he quotes. And the Lord humbled you 
And he lets you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Friends, what Israel should have learned in the wilderness wanderings is that God's provision is perfect. Friends, God's provision is not always what we expected. God's provision is not always what we wanted, but God's provision is always what we need. And his timing is perfect. And Jesus and Israel and we must learn to patiently trust the Lord's provision and not grasp and complain and question. And friends, Jesus doesn't fall for the devil's temptation here because he knows who he is. He, he knows that his hunger doesn't mean that he's unloved. His hunger doesn't mean that God will fail to provide. Jesus knows his current emptiness doesn't mean that God's word and his promises are untrue. Jesus doesn't need to take things into his own hands, but he knows he is the obedient and beloved son. And so he acts accordingly. He patiently waits for the Lord's provision. Friends, how do you struggle with impatience? Where in your life do you distrust God's provision? Now, an important aside here. Friends, we need to note something. You need to note something. That God, that Jesus here, does not resist the temptation of the accuser by using any superpowers. Jesus does not resist temptation using superpowers. He resists temptation with the exact same weapon that you have in your hand. The Word of God. Friends, spiritual warfare is real, but we have misunderstood it. Spiritual warfare is real, but we have misunderstood it. Because when you read about spiritual warfare in the New Testament, it is not a battle of power. It is a battle of truth. This is not a battle of power, it's a battle about truth. And when the Apostle Paul writes about spiritual warfare for us in Ephesians chapter 6, he lists the armor of God, and all of the pieces are defensive pieces except for one. And that's in Ephesians 6 verse 17. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Friends, the sword is God's Word. It's our only offensive weapon in spiritual warfare. And my friends, my friends, today we're watching Christians falling left and right, prey to the devil's lies. We are watching many who at one point claimed to follow Jesus, giving in to the devil's temptations and abandoning the faith. And friends, it's because Christians are running around unarmed. We're trying to go into battle without a weapon. If you do not know the Word of God, if you are not growing in your knowledge of the Word of God, then you are unarmed. And friends, it is not a question of if you will fall. It is a question of when you will fall. If you go into battle unarmed, it's not a question of if. It's a question of when. You will not stand long against temptation if you are unarmed. Jesus had one weapon in his battle against the devil's lies. And church, it is the same weapon that is available to you 
and to me? Are you trying to fight life's battles unarmed? And church, we need to know the Word of God and we need to learn how to rightly handle it because let me tell you something scary. If you don't know the Word of God, your adversary does. If you do not know the Word of God, friends, I promise you, your adversary does. In verses 5 and 6, the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and quotes the Bible to him. The devil quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, and says, Hey, Jesus, based upon these verses, it says you can throw yourself down off the temple. God, do it. Don't you trust Jesus? Don't, Jesus, don't you trust God? Church, hear me clearly. There's still plenty of devils out there today trying to twist the Word of God to make it say something it was never meant to say. Bible verses taken out of context can be, have been, and are currently being misused to justify all kinds of actions, attitudes, behaviors, and lifestyles that God has clearly and unequivocally condemned. Friends, individual Bible verses, if they're taken out of context, can be used to justify anything. You see, a individual Bible verse was written in the context of other verses around it, and the other verses around it were written in a larger chapter, and the chapter was in a book, and that book is situated in a collection of books. Friends, individual scriptures can only be rightly understood in context. And what Satan does here is pluck Psalm 91 out of context, tries to apply it to Jesus in a way that was never meant to be applied, and with this misimplied passage, Satan is tempting Jesus to play games with God. He's tempting Jesus to play games with God. You know, it was years ago. But one of my kids asked me, and they said, Dad, what's the difference between a miracle and magic? What's the difference between a miracle and magic? I had to think about it. But my answer was, a miracle is God accomplishing God's purposes by the supernatural. Whereas magic is humanity trying to accomplish humanity's purposes by somehow manipulating the supernatural. And friends, if that's true, then every one of us here are amateur magicians. Because every one of us is guilty of trying to manipulate God to our own ends and for our own glory. We rub the lucky rabbit's foot. We call upon his name when we want or need something. Friends, there's a whole corrupted branch of Christian teaching called the prosperity gospel that calls people to name and claim God's blessings. In such teaching, prayer is not a means of submitting to God. Prayer is to claim things from God and to claim things for God. Friends, it's actually a distortion of the identity question because what it asks, it says, well, if you're truly a child of God, then shouldn't all these blessings of God be readily available to you at your word? And your declaration? Church, Satan is tempting Jesus and he's tempting us to play games with God. To, to again, seek a shortcut. To again, be impatient. Try to manipulate God. Jesus, try to manipulate God. Force his hand. Force him to do something. Throw yourself from the temple. Friends, Satan tempts us to try to bend God to our purposes rather than us being submitted to God's purposes. 
And Jesus answers Satan's misapplication of Scripture with the right application of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus said to him again, it's written, You shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Friends, Jesus knows who he is. He's a true son of God. He doesn't need to play games with God. He doesn't need to demand that God prove himself or prove his love. A true child of God submitted to God, patiently trusting the Lord's provision. Church, how are you trying to manipulate and submit God to your will rather than submitting to his word, his purposes? And finally, in Matthew verse, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, it tells us again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all of these I'll give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Friends, sin is always a shortcut. Sin is always a shortcut. And the devil is offering Jesus a shortcut. Avoid the persecution and the rejection. Escape the agony of the cross. Gain the whole world. It will only cost you your soul. Friends, this is like Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. There were many in that story who wanted to take the ring of ultimate power and with the purest of intentions, with the most noble of purposes, they wanted to take that power and use it to some supposedly good ends. And friends, that is the very temptation that Jesus faces here. Take the power of the world and use it to win. Win with the powers and the means of the world. But as we see in the Lord of the Rings story, friends, yielding to and wielding such power corrupts and betrays and destroys no matter what your intentions. Ultimately, that power couldn't be safely wielded. It had to be destroyed in the fires in which it was forged. And friends, it's the same with such earthly power. There are no shortcuts. Christ may gain the kingdoms of the world without suffering, but friends, what will it cost? You may gain the whole world, but in the process, lose your soul. And church, how many times have you and I, how many times have we succumbed to that same temptation? We compromise. We compromise. We worship the God of popularity and acceptance by compromising on biblical truth. We worship the God of security by compromising on biblical hospitality or generosity. We cozy up to the gods of political power and we compromise our integrity and we forsake justice. We worship the God of pleasure by compromising our call to biblical obedience and service and sacrifice. Friends, these other gods, they tempt and they promise, but none of them can actually deliver. And Jesus answers the devil's temptation with another passage from Israel's wilderness wandering. Deuteronomy 6.13. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Friends, this declaration that Jesus makes at the beginning of verse 10, Be gone, Satan, we actually hear Him say these exact same words one other time in all of the Gospels. In Matthew Chapter 16, we hear this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 20, starting in 21. Now, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, 
He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Friends, to oppose or deny the necessity of Jesus' suffering and resurrection is satanic. When you hear a voice that tells you that there is a shortcut to obedience, a shortcut that avoids suffering, that avoids sacrifice, a shortcut that has no cost attached to it, you can boldly say along with Jesus, get behind me, Satan. Because that is the voice of the enemy tempting you. Friends, there is no shortcut to obedience. Make no mistake, there is great joy in obedience, but obedience always has a cost. And that cost may be suffering and it may be sacrifice. We must learn to patiently trust in God's word, God's provision, and God's timing. Who do you think you are? Friends, who do you think you are? Jesus knows who he is. He's the beloved son. His activity flows from his identity. He, he knows he's loved. He can patiently await the Lord's timing, his provision. He doesn't need to take things into his own hands. He doesn't need to force God's hands. He doesn't need to finagle a shortcut around suffering and sacrifice. Jesus knew who he was to the Father, and so the temptation of Satan lost their effect on him. And church, Christ has come to make you and to make me beloved sons and daughters of God. Friends, understand, Jesus has come not just to change your behavior. Jesus has come to change your identity. Jesus has come to change your identity. And from your identity flows your activity. From your identity flows the ability to stand in the face of temptation. Jesus, the Son of God, has come to make you a son and daughter of God to change your identity. As the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Friends, Christ has come that you might be adopted as sons and daughters of God. That the, the spirit of the Son might enter in, in, in your heart and transform you. So that you might know who you are. So that you might know who the Father is. So that the temptations of Satan, the temptations of this world might lose their power upon you. So that your obedience might flow from your identity. Your fruit will be different because the tree is different. Church, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Because you are sons, because you are daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. So church, from the power of the Spirit that is within you, remember, remember who you are as you face temptations, as you face trials, as you face challenges, remember 
who you are and live your identity. Let's pray. Father, we come as a forgetful people. We need to be reminded again and again and again. So as we come to the table now, a table of remembrance, Father, remind us. Remind us who you are. Remind us who you've made us in Jesus Christ. And may we feed upon your grace and be given strength in our time of need that we might stand against the devil's schemes and his lies. And Father, that we might live out our identity as sons and daughters of God. In Jesus' name, Amen. If those who are serving